0: Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this week we are continuing to look at the infinite value of knowing Christ. And last week I ended with that first value. And secondly, comes in this part of verse six. And what I'd like to do in exploring this value is to examine it through sort of two perspectives. First, to look at opposing faith, because really it's about faith. Faith is the value. But Paul sort of takes this perspective of, let's look at it on the negative, and then let's look at it on the positive. So the one is opposing faith, and the second is true faith. To understand true faith is to understand first what it looks like when there is not true faith, when there is the opposite of true faith, which is opposing faith. So before Paul begins to describe this faith, he begins by looking at what false faith looks like. And for Paul, as we see in the first part of verse 6, what opposes true faith are these two opposite ideas of righteousness. The first is working for your righteousness. And the second is freedom from all righteousness. So these are aspects of what opposing faith is. I'm going to try to explain to you each to show you how each one of them opposes true faith. Let's look at... um, the verse again verse 6 for in christ jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything and the idea of it is that what paul has spoken much about in galatians is that working for our righteousness actually opposes true faith we spent a lot of time talking about how paul describes to the galatians that our faith is in christ and in his righteousness And that righteousness completely negates our righteousness. It negates our efforts to salvation. Our righteousness does not merit salvation. It doesn't depend upon how we act or what we do that makes us worthy of Christ and worthy of the gospel and ultimately worthy of our acceptance before God. And so all that which we place our hope in other than Jesus is going to lead us astray. And enslave us again, that's sort of a summary of where we've been thus far. We've gone through. And so when Paul here, once again, he brings up circumcision and circumcision. Remember signifies so much more than just a physical act. Circumcision signifies our place as God's people by our efforts, by our traditions by our faithfulness to God, by our covenant faithfulness to God. It signifies that we are by our actions before him. And so the line then between doing things for God and as an outflow of our faith that flows out acts, that line is so thin that it can quickly cross over to become that which is heartfelt to that which is merely ritualistic or traditional or religious. And this leads to exactly the opposite of what we want, which is true joy and freedom. Now, let me just explain this, give you an illustration. Um, When I was in college and came back to the Lord after a time of rebellion, I decided to stop listening to all non-Christian music. And I listened to a lot. I had a lot of tapes and records. I know you're probably thinking records. I had actually 16-inch records. If you know what that is, it's like DJ records. And I just threw them all out, pulled out all my tapes. And I know some of you are thinking, what are you talking about? Some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, I remember that. So I started pulling them all out, tossed it into the garbage, threw it away. Because I felt convicted that the music that I was listening to especially for me, it influenced my heart. I just couldn't worship the Lord while I was listening to this. It wasn't, it wasn't that it was evil in and of itself, but for my heart, for my conscience at that time it was. So I decided to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that conviction, even that personal conviction. The problem was when I would walk into my friend's car, usually it would Journey would be playing or Jazz would be playing or sticks, or whatever, Led Zeppelin, or... And I I just was so troubled by what they were listening to. And in my heart, my, and these are Christian friends and brothers and sisters, and I would hear it, and my first instinct would be, I think they're struggling spiritually. I think there's something wrong with them. I don't know if they really know the Lord, because if they really did, they would have the exact same conviction that I had. Do you see, the first act of my personal conviction of recognizing that a certain style of music, while you might say there's nothing wrong with that, and I agree with you now, but back then, there, there was something in that that was sort of deterring my walk with the Lord. and I That personal conviction of giving that up was unto the Lord, and there's nothing wrong with that. It really was, a fruit of faith but that line is so easily crossed over once i start taking a personal conviction and start applying it broadly to others and then the fruit of that comes criticism judgmentalism legalism so we we can see how easily we move over from circumcision which God always gave as a symbol, a sign that says, we are God's people. We are God's covenant people. We're a people of promise. Slowly, if we focus only on the act, it shifts over to legalism. I really like the way that C.S. Lewis warns us in Mere Christianity. He says, one of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. See, that's me, right? That is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage or meat or beer or the cinema, but the moment he starts looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he is taking the wrong turn. I really like the way that C.S. Lewis describes this person. They are the bad man. (laughs) See, we tend to think, Bad people are the ones who do these things, who drink beer, go to the movies, um, you know, eat a certain type of meat, whatever it might be. Those are the bad people. But the good people are the ones who are moral, who are trying to sacrifice for Jesus. But absolutely, if you read Galatians five, six, you see that this type of faith is an opposing faith to the gospel. Because what we're doing is we're taking some meritorious righteousness and saying, this is what makes me holy. Not what Christ has done on that cross has made me holy. Unless we are free from our own righteousness, we will never truly be free. There's the flip side, though, of this type of opposing faith, which is equally harmful to the souls. Because on the one side, you have legalism. On the other side, you have licentiousness. On the one side, you say circumcision. On the other side, you say no circumcision or uncircumcision, as Paul says. So he's he's doing what he always does. He gives us both, and he says both extremes are deadly to your souls. And the other extreme is freedom from all righteousness. That is to say that we don't have to follow Christ, and we don't have to have any fruit in our lives. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. There's often this idea that grace means we can do whatever we want anytime without any repercussions. That grace means we don't have to think about holiness. There's a license to sin. And in a sense, we true gospel preaching, as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, the more you preach the gospel, the true gospel the more people will struggle with this idea of, can I sin and be okay? Just thinking about that is not wrong. And I know you might think, what? I, how, how can that be? Because again, remember, our default is merit righteousness. I, what I do makes an impact to God's favor with me. If that's the default, then preaching the gospel that says, nothing you do, actually makes you righteous before God, then it's very easy to push the pendulum to the other side and say, I can do anything and be righteous before God. That in and of itself isn't wrong. We should be pushed that direction, but we have to recognize also that being pushed into that direction, there needs to be some sort of course correction to recognize it's not always every extreme is okay. And I think as long as we're a gospel-centered church, we're going to, some of us are going to struggle with, wait a second, are they really thinking it's okay to say, now you're going to really, I'm going to get a ton of questions or emails, maybe uh, maybe critical ones, but is it really okay to smoke pot as a Christian? I actually think if we're preaching the gospel, we should at least be able to really wrestle with that question. Is it okay? Does the gospel free me to actually live with someone who is not my husband or wife? Again, I'm not saying that these two things we should do these freely. It's exactly what I'm going to talk about next is that no, we have to keep these in mind. But if we're preaching the gospel in a gospel centered church, Actually, there should be those type of questions brought up where we're wrestling with it and we're not afraid to wrestle with it so that someone who perhaps is not their husband or wife and they're living together and have lived as a a common law marriage for years comes into this church building. And our first instinct isn't to think, oh, did you hear about what they're doing? Do you hear about who they are? Rather, they need to hear Christ. Do they, oh, a gay couple comes in. Do you know what they, how we should all be afraid? No, it's, they need Christ. Like that's our instinct is they need Christ, not let's try to get their marriage to be pure first. And if we really understand that, then we are wrestling with the gospel, the implications of it. Now with that said, I want to go to the other extreme. The other extreme is, I can just do whatever I want. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, when he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? So if you follow Paul in Romans in chapter 5, he has already said, Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And at the end of chapter five, and so the point of it is to say, the Roman church is saying, well, Paul, if you're saying where sin abounds, grace abounds more, then actually isn't it good for me to sin? Because if I sin more, then grace will abound more. And Paul is saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace abound? Because that's what we want. We want more grace. So that means that we should sin more to get more grace. See, here's the problem with that thinking. The problem is that you assume that you have to intentionally sin more for grace to abound. But actually, we're just always sinning more. I mean, we don't even have to. And it happens because that's our, again, our heart's sort of default mode against God is we're regularly sinning. So what Paul isn't saying is, hey, go try to sin more for that person. As he says in Romans 3, that person deserves judgment because they don't know the Lord. If you're even thinking, I want to sin more, then you don't know Christ at all. But you don't have to try to sin more to sin more. We just do it. And that's why Paul's whole point is, you have Christ, you have Jesus. Because you have Jesus, you are free. And we know, according to this verse, look at what he says, we died to sin. We've died to it. We no longer rule by it. It doesn't master us. It doesn't mean we don't sin, but we can actually not sin. We are able to not sin, and we are able to actually overcome it. And so it doesn't have the power it had before we turned to Christ, before the Holy Spirit indwelt within us. It doesn't master us. We know we're his children. We want to obey him. We can obey him. We actually can act in faith and live by faith. I love how Paul describes this idea in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That verse shows us this common function of Christ does the work, changes us. By his spirit, he empowers us to actually overcome and work hard to overcome. Now, again, I've spent a lot of time talking about the fact that it is not us who overcomes. It is the spirit who overcomes. But he does then change our hearts and affect us in a way that now we can overcome. Tim Keller gives this illustration about his kids, and I thought it was a really apt and appropriate illustration for our time. He uh, he talked about his college age, and since I have college age kids myself, I remember the time when my kids were seniors in high school. And uh, after taking all your exams, studying, working so hard, by the time you're um, second semester senior and you round... March, April, for those who are pursuing college, they start hearing their college acceptances. And so they finally get accepted to a school they're going to go to. And what's the instinct to happen once you find out you're accepted? Is it, I really need to study harder now so that I can be faithful in the task at hand that God has called me to be a student. So I'm not gonna just slack off. I'm actually gonna pour out more work and more effort so that when I can finish strong, is that how it works? Seniors, (laughs) that's not how it works, right? There are instances where people get accepted and then they slack off so much they fail their classes and the college will actually rescind their acceptance. It actually happens. See, that means that actually they were never truly accepted. Not really. You're never accepted until you actually get in, once you start going to the school. Similarly, our complete lack of desire to obey and trust in Christ, it doesn't mean that we lose our salvations. It means that perhaps we were never accepted in the first place. Because if your instinct is, well, I've been accepted, so I don't have to do anything and I can just do whatever I want, anytime I want, and just flunk all my classes, well, then the school says, you know what? You're not really accepted. You have a, you know, it's sort of a conditional acceptance based on us deciding whether you're going to make it, but your actions reveal one of us. You're not part of our school, so you're not actually going to be accepted it showed that we were never accepted in the first place. And I think that illustration in some way gives gives you an idea of the believer of Christ, as Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit. The fruit itself is not the merit, but if there is a truth to it, a, a life that is changed, there will be fruit born. It won't be something you have to conjure up or force out it's there. So that's why we look then at this true faith, according to verse six, that the infinite value of knowing Jesus above all else, Paul describes it this way in verse six, but only faith working through love. So what does Paul mean by that phrase to describe this true faith? Cause it's really important for us to know, do I have this? And Paul lays it out for us. And what does he mean? First, this is really all throughout Galatians and Romans and Colossians. Faith itself is not a work. We cannot misunderstand Paul here because it's a subtle but crucial difference. Too many people, even very smart scholarly biblical theologians have gone the wrong way when it comes to understanding faith because it is very tempting to think that when Paul says that we are justified by faith to think that faith is really faithfulness. That is to say that it's my faith that God justifies me. It's what theologians call synergism versus monergism, that it's two people working together, the Holy spirit and me working together to save me versus monergism, God acting, we responding and that's it. And when, we see this, we have to realize that faith itself is not the work. It's not the end goal to the Christian life. Christ is. Faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Jesus and his atoning work saves you. True faith is an instrument by which the Holy Spirit uses to cause you to respond to him. And Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. Faith is a gift. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. So recognize that when we talk about being justified by faith, faith is the response. It's it's a fruit. It's a gift. It shows us that we are united to Christ, but it doesn't save us in and of itself. And if we slowly, and it's very subtle, but if you start thinking of faith as that's the work itself, that's the the cause of my salvation, then what you'll find is eventually you'll get to a place where you'll say, it's actually me. So even though I hear the word faith, it's actually a work. It's that subtle. The line is that thin, but it goes so quick. And when you go down that road, if you keep on going the natural conclusions and consequences of that, eventually you start losing sight of God and it becomes all about me. So again, that word faith, it is so important to understand exactly what it is. Secondly is, faith has one critical role. It unites us to Christ. We know faith doesn't produce salvation. It doesn't produce righteousness. But what it does do is, it is God's instrument by his Holy Spirit to unite us to Christ. To unite us to his righteousness to unite us to his atoning work. And faith regularly always brings us back to Christ and his atoning work on the cross. It's always going back to that. But what faith doesn't do is it doesn't establish rules and regulations for your life. Faith doesn't cause us to fight our anxiety by reading the latest book on anxiety. You know, actually, that's not the first instinct of faith is when I struggle with anxiety, I'm going to find all these different books that talk about anxiety. Faith is not this program that fights temptation. Faith doesn't provide accountability software for when you are struggling with lust. Why? Because one thing we've seen through this letter to the Galatians is that Paul is trying to get us to stop fighting our unrighteousness with our self-righteousness. By the way, that is our number one instinct is to think that to fight sin, you have to use moralism to fight it. Faith, even faith itself, if we misunderstand it, it becomes, we take the fruit of faith, not faith itself, and we actually try to fight our sinfulness with that moralism, and it leads to another sin. We can't defeat sin with more sin. We can't defeat our immoralism with our self-exalting moralism, which is another form of immoralism. I know that sounds confusing, I, but I hope you understand what I'm saying is that, our again, our instinct is to always think fight sin with ourselves, with our moralism, with our righteousness. It's like, I read this book on, it's called Quackery. It was actually a book all about Throughout uh, human history, different ways that people have tried to fight disease or illness, and you should see some of the things that people have used. For example, to fight certain types of illnesses, they've used strychnine, which is a poison, rat poison, you know, and or they've used um, radium and large amounts of it, or uh, silver, or and uh, you know some of these. And the point of this book is that used in small bits and with sort of exactness, they have value to it. But if you just use it, like just take as much as you want and try to fight all sorts of conditions, it can actually kill you. And it has done that many times in the past. It's so similar. In many ways, we have this condition. We're suffering physically and we're taking strychnine to fight it. And to think that if we take this strychnine, it's going to destroy that illness, that cancer. But in fact, it kills us as well, maybe even faster in the process. And so the more we use moralism and the law, druggle. My friends, this is why going to church or having an awesome Christian program for kids and youth will not lead believers to Jesus not in and of itself. We do not have a children's ministry to save children from sin. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to point people to Christ and to walk alongside families and parents so that you have the tools. And by the way, you don't even have the tools to be able to save them. You can only show them, but only Christ saves. And our goal is, which is one of the reasons why we call the children's ministry gospel train, is to show them Christ. But we can't change their hearts. And youth programs, no matter how entertaining, no matter how dedicated youth workers are, one, statistically it's shown that it doesn't actually change people's hearts. Very few people have turned to Christ because of a youth program. It's actually Christ and Christ alone. And the more we think that going to church, youth programs, children's ministries, oh, I need the best youth pastor in order to save my children, to save my wayward teen. And I can tell you how tempting it is for us to think that if I get, if we go to the right church with the exact gifted, super duper youth pastor who is able to have the right program, then my child will really love Jesus and will live a really good moral life. No, I'm sorry to say, but that's not going to happen. Not according to Paul, not according to the Bible. Your kid's salvation is not guaranteed by that any more than a huge reservoir drinking water is going to help a man dying of thirst who's a hundred miles away from that reservoir. Your kids need to be united to Christ. They need to be right there drinking out of the well. They can't be apart from him. And that union comes through the spirit, by grace, through faith. It's not going to be because of Christian moralism, because they've given up secular music or because they don't drink and smoke, or have the right friends. There's, are there values to these things? There's value to these things. But it is so subtle to place your hope into these things as that which saves them. And I do think we have to constantly go back to asking the question, am I placing my heart in these things to do the work of salvation? If you're understanding Paul rightly in verse six, it's not to say we don't ask tough questions. It's not to say we don't actually involve ourselves into our loved one's lives and show them Christ and point them to him. But at the same time, we never place our hope in that either. And both of those things are concurrent. They're happening regularly. We also know that faith works to produce love. It's pretty obvious from this verse, right? I think the critical word in that part is not the word love, but the word works. Because that's not a word, again, you think of when you think of faith. But that's actually the word, the Greek word that Paul uses. It's not, it's not that faith produces love. He could have said faith produces it. He says faith works. It works to express itself. It's not just an expression. You wouldn't think this word work matches up with grace, but it does if we understand rightly the order of the words. If faith unites us to Christ as God's gift, then it does work to produce a fruit. It labors to produce that fruit. It's Engine, its source is Christ. And I, I know I'm, I'm spending a lot of time belaboring these points, but I have to do that to make sure you don't misunderstand me, is that Christ uni- is united with you. You are in Christ. That phrase, that prepositional phrase is the most important used prepositional phrase in the whole Bible, in Christ. so I, Paul in the New Testament uses it again and again repetitively. Because if you miss that, then it does sound like works-based righteousness over and over again. But if we are in Christ, united to him by his spirit, then there is a producing of a work, a work that produces love. You know, I went to a friend's house, and he had a plum tree. And we looked at the plum tree. My mother-in-law was there. She looked at the plum tree plum tree and she's like your tree is diseased <laughs> it was the plums there were first of all the tree was riddled with leaves uh, the holes in the leaves and the bark was all crusted over and there was one old plum and and I asked him I said how how many plums have you eaten they've had it for years and they said one you know so I was thinking yeah there really is something wrong with your plum tree because here's the thing is that Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit. And if it doesn't, it's not the fruit that's the problem. It's the tree that's the problem. It's the roots. And it's, it's the fact that it's not getting enough nutrients and water and sunlight and something is happening at the, at the base, at the core. And so what Paul is saying again is that if you look at the fruit At the very least you can say, how is the base? If the fruit is always diseased and broken and sour, then we should be asking the question, not why are you angry all the time? And that's it. We stay with anger, but it's what's going on in your heart. You know, if there's a lot of worry in your life, don't just stay at the worry, start asking. What's going on deep in your heart? Are you united to Christ? I was uh, having this discussion with Sua this morning and I was just asking her and asking the question. of, You know, so oftentimes we think maybe some of you are feeling spiritually dry. And we use that phrase, right? Spiritually dry, sort of a little deadened towards the Lord. And the instinct is to think, did God sort of move himself, remove himself from my life? Has he sort of run away? But when you look at scripture, for the believer, there's almost no instance where God completely removes himself from the believer. It's always the believer whose heart has been distanced from God by sin. When we're feeling dry, the first instinct should be, where have I sinned? Where have I turned away from the Lord? How have I stopped trusting in him. And if we're honest with ourselves in our hearts, and we go deep, you will find a place where you see I've I've been riddled with unbelief. See, it's not anger or anxiety, it's unbelief that's deep in my heart. And that unbelief, and maybe that idolatry of placing my hope and my worth and my value into something other than Christ is now leading to all these sort of diseased riddled plums that are flooding my heart and my soul and it's expressing itself out a good tree will bear good fruit and this fruit looks like a faith that works. True faith in Christ actually works hard it battles it disciplines itself Again Paul said and I quoted this last time in Corinthians first Corinthians chapter 9 verse 26 to 27. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should should, uh, be disqualified. Again, another qualification. I am not saying we work to gain personal righteousness. We never do. We can't, it's not possible. Uh, to do so is to fall back to the flesh, to fall back to circumcision, to the law, which apart from Christ is death. But when we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, we actually battle, we fight, we discipline, we refuse to be self-centered. We, we sort of cringe at our idea of self-protection, we, for living for myself and my own pleasures. We perhaps wake up early in the morning to pray, not because we think we're more righteous than that person over there, but because we understand our own faithfulness and desire to want to follow the Lord on our own. Uh, We could go right back sleeping. We don't do things because we look godly. We do it because we are loved. We are accepted and we desire to follow Jesus. As I shared on June 20th, Carlin Wendler is going to be coming to speak to him. You know, his story is very interesting. He, medical doctor, and one of the things that he told me was that when he was at the University of Michigan studying medicine, it was with a a group of fellow Christian students, all doctors, amazingly, all of them, and it, it rarely happens this way, but all these doctors, there was a number of them, something like five or six of them, together decided Let's serve overseas as missionaries. And I think we all know that in our society, in our world, medicine is one area where there's so much prestige. Prestige in our world, prestige financially, prestige security-wise, prestige in terms of just intelligence. And for these six doctors to go to, and they searched for a place, and, and that was the place where the Lord was leading them, And they decided to set up a missionary hospital and a training center for doctors, not just for medicine, but for discipleship, for discipling and leading people to Christ. You know, you could say, I think the world would say, that's such a waste. You could have really enjoyed life. And yet you're wasting your gifts, your talents, and your money and your comfort. And what are you doing to your own children? You see, faith works when you are impacted and affected by the gospel, it, it changes you. It makes it day you live your life and the way you view the world. And this fruit of faith has what the Bible calls love. Without faith, there is no love. We can look religious without love. And one great example of this is Jesus' dinner with Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 49. Simon was so consumed with proper moral religious etiquette and is a a Jew that he couldn't see Jesus as a savior. And he couldn't see that this immoral woman who ran into his house was someone who also needed a savior. He had no faith. But you know what he did have? He had the look of faith. What did the look of faith look like? He knew God's word. He knew the law. He dressed very well. He was educated. He actually attended synagogue faithfully. He tithed. He served. He probably gave money to the poor. So he had the look of faith just like so many of us do. But what he didn't have was faith itself. And without faith, he actually had no love. But let's contrast the look of faith of Simon to the look of sin of this prostitute. I mean, She was a prostitute. She probably looked the part. Everyone knew she was a prostitute. She was a woman of the city. As When she came in, everyone knew what she did and probably people sort of moved away from her. But what did she do? She broke this jar. She anointed Jesus for this burial. She placed her trust in a crucified Messiah. And because she knew she needed to be forgiven of her sins, she understood love. Look at how Luke, uh, Jesus describes it in Luke seven forty-seven. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Do you see the difference? One who has faith loves much. They pour out their life. They don't care about what other people think. They just care about their worship to their Savior. And that expresses itself. And by the way, that breaking of that jar was her way of saying, because that's a lot of money for a prostitute who think about how, many, how much work it took for her to save up to buy that. And by breaking that, it was her way of saying, I'm done. You've given me life. I don't need to live this way. You are my life. You are my hope. You are my identity. And so that love would express itself in so many different ways to Jesus and probably to so many other people. She had a lot of love. But for Simon who looked so respectable. He was actually the bad man. See, for the prostitute, her sins would look far worse than Simon's, right? If we were to actually have those two people standing in front of us, wouldn't we be tempted to think he's truly the godly man, the godly person, she's the sinner? Would you have ever imagined that it was actually the opposite? Would you want her testimony? She didn't care about what other people heard. She didn't care about the fact that everyone knew she was someone who was of ill repute. We're so quick. We, it's so hard for us to relinquish our reputation. We don't want anyone to know what we've ever done in the past. But this woman comes up and everyone knows. But yet she's the one who loves who's not the sinner, who is the saved. And you have Simon, who is so outwardly, so good looking, so righteous. He has the reputation, but he's the sinner. He's the one who doesn't understand salvation. True faith always works to love. And the love is centered on Christ. We're working to make Christ known. And by doing so, by being freed from trying to uphold our own reputation, we're able to love others. The most moving testimonies I've ever heard are the ones of those broken. And it's not because we aren't broken. Simon was just as broken. He had a, just as great of a testimony to share if he would have only shared it. But he didn't want to because he was all about protecting himself, protecting his reputation what he looked like. True faith always works love. It refuses to give in. When we are at our lowest point, when we're absolutely undeserving, when no one else would love us, Jesus did. And that fuels our love for other people and most of all, our love for our Father.